All right. Okay. Um, so I get to do not only the ABF f- from this morning's text, but Daniel's Philemon message last week. I told him he dodged a bullet there. So, um, so if you have any questions from Philemon, the book, or John uh, 9 this morning. Actually, I'll start with just Philemon. Any questions from Philemon? And I will totally reserve the right to punt. Um, any questions from Pastor Daniel's message last week? Matt. Is there anywhere that tells... Philemon's reaction like did he do no we're only Paul's confidence that he would right um, he's confident that's, that's, he would yes but then it kind of but no we don't know uh, no it's 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 remarkable um, it's remarkable Paul's Paul's writing and reasoning there any other you guys aren't gonna ask the obvious one obvious question is obvious Paul sent a runaway slave back to his master. That's not the obvious. Okay. Yes, he did. The zeitgeist of today, I think, would very much abhor such uh, such action. I, mean, I could be wrong, but yeah. But he sent him back not as a slave. But he, he yes and no. He he encourages Philemon to receive him back as a brother. But he makes it clear Philemon's not under compulsion. I remember I was talking through Daniel about it. So my question to Daniel: So could Philemon? Is he free to say no? Yeah, yeah, he is. <laughs> right, right. No, Paul's explicit on the point. He's he's free to say no, or he's free to say something like, "I need him first. I mean, part of it is Paul doesn't know what the exact. Um, circumstances are maybe there's i need him for the harvest and then sure or but philemon has flexibility paul is exhorting and urging him to do something but not refusing to command him so yeah um yeah it's 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 interesting and no questions on that okay I'll, hey daniel daniel was right to uh you guys could handle that but uh okay john nine questions from this morning on the miracle of sight. And I would like to, uh, to reiterate something I fear I may have said poorly um, this morning. But the, the whole flow of this miracle is to set up, I believe, what Jesus says in verse 39. 39 is really the pivot point. So Jesus does this miracle in order to make this, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And this man born blind is the imagery of that. But clearly, the sight and the, the blindness that Jesus is talking about is spiritual, not physical. So the physical miracle of healing a man born blind is meant to signify or picture the Jesus' dual mission of both giving sight to the blind and blinding those who see. Um, so that's the warrant for why I think this is talking about a spiritual reality. And then Jesus finishing this man who's already evidencing some level of sight, some level of insight, some clarity, bringing him to completion. 
or to use the analogy from John 3, finishing the birth process is what we have here. Does that, any questions on that? You guys, any, any confusion over why I'm linking this with, say, John 3 and being born again? Why I think they're talking about the same thing? Any? Man, okay, cool. All right. Okay. Eric. So in our study of Romans, um, right, Christ says here, um, for judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see, or those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And then we go over into Romans, Mm -hmm. and you see, therefore God gave them up. You know, for this reason God gave them up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Is this the same kind of theme? Is this the, 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 the continuation of those who choose not to see are then Yeah, you're, you're, getting, you're getting into next week. But yeah, if you go to John 12, John 12 is going to quote Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6 is going to be explicit. So let's go to Isaiah 6 by way of John 12. John 12, um, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So the blinding is meant to be understood, I believe, as a judicial judgment on people who don't want to see. So hear the progression. He says Isaiah yeah, both times. First, there were, he, he's astonished. Clearly they're responsible. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe in him. To such people, they get blinded permanently and fully. So, so in Isaiah 6, if you turn there, because um, that's what he's quoting. So, so the similarity would be, to your question, in Romans 1, in response to man's suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, in response of men worshiping the created order rather than the creator, men trading the truth of God for a lie, God gives them over. There's a judicial, okay, if you want to be that way, you're going to be that way. Um, the same thing is happening here. So everyone, not everyone, a, a well-known passage in Isaiah 6 the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and he goes through, and he's, woe is me, from a man of unclean lips. And then, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me, go. And I pause. I've been to commissioning ceremonies where people are being commissioned for gospel ministry, and they quote this. Most people I know would not want the commission that Isaiah gets. So Isaiah says, send me. What's the message? And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So that's, that's what John quotes. 
So Jesus has a dual ministry. When we went through Luke's gospel, it was the same thing. When Jesus explained, why does he teach in parables? Anyone remember? Why, why did Jesus say he taught in parables? Was it so that common everyday folk could understand with helpful, easy to access illustrations that anyone could get? It was to hide truth. Jesus said, sorry, I asked a question. I'm answering my own question, which is poor form. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, I speak this way so that hearing they will not hear and seeing they will not see. Jesus used parables to obfuscate as much as to reveal. There's a sense in which some of y'all have got eyes to see and you're going to see what I'm getting at. And some of y'all don't. And I'm, that's part of what he's doing with the whole Son of Man title. It just went right over the heads of most people. Okay, yeah, whatever. And some guys like this man born blind, Daniel 7, make the connection. Now the question then is, is this just an arbitrary, capricious act of God? Is God just saying, okay, some of you are going to see and then uh, some of you are going to blind? Not in Isaiah's terminology. The, the language here, we've, we've done this before, but I'll do it again, is the language of spiritual sensory deprivation. So this is, especially in Isaiah, it shows up a number of times. Seeing they do not see. Hearing they do not hear. What characterizes the idols of the people? They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. So again and again, and especially in Isaiah, the rebuke on these idols, you're going to worship the created order. You can paint eyes on the thing, it doesn't see. You can paint a mouth on the thing, it doesn't speak. You can paint ears on the thing, it doesn't hear. It's not going to walk around. You've got to pick it up and put it down. Go to Psalm 115 verse 8 actually verse 3 we'll start in verse 3 115 our God is in the heavens he does all that he pleases their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands they have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So the the concept is you will be conformed to what you worship. Whatever you value most, you'll become to look like. It's not just animals who look like their masters. Worshippers begin to resemble that which they worship. If you go back to the golden calf encounter in Exodus, God's using language about Israel. They've broken out like a calf. No, it's right there. And here, the people begin to resemble the idols they worship. So when the text starts saying of the people, they have eyes but do not see, and they have ears but do not hear, the assumption is because they're idolaters, they've been conformed to this image. And, uh, and the Isaiah's point is at a certain point, you don't get to change anymore. At a certain point, you're, you're, you put the soft clay in the oven, it gets hardened into a shape. And Jesus came both to, to open eyes, but also to harden into a final form idolaters and rebels. He, he's polarizing. He does that. Just as we saw the, Pharise- the, the encounter with the man born blind, we see him growing in faith as his eyes open, and we see the Pharisees harden in unbelief. They start even amongst themselves divided, right? And yet by the end of their encounter, they're, they're unified. They hate Jesus. He's a sinner. He's not from God. Um, and Jesus comes to do both of those things. There's, a, there's an edge on both sides of the blade. There's a, a eye-opening, re, um, revealing, enlightening ministry, and there's a ministry of judgment. 
where people are not arbitrarily or capriciously blinded. It's the equivalent of the people that want to not see, the people that want to cover their eyes, eventually have their eyes taken away. That, that's the idea, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, Jesus is, is doing that. So that language of seeing but do not see, hearing but do not hear, it's all hearkening back to idolatry because that's what characterizes the idols. And so when you call people that, you're calling them idolaters. So the, the blinding is in response to idolatry. Big, yes, Jackie, needs a microphone. Can you explain the difference with John 9.39, the judgment with John 3... 17. Yes. Um, the, our English word judgment usually only has um, a negative view, like uh, con- condemnation. The, uh, the Greek, let me check, I'm guessing it's krinomai, my guess. So 9 what? For judgment, I came into For the For judgment, 939. 939. Let me verify that it is, in fact, krinomai. Um... Krima, it's not the verb, it's the noun. Okay, yes. So judgment, krinomai can mean to, to, uh, to evaluate, to rate. It means to render a verdict is the idea. So even, in John, so even in John 3, Jesus said, the Father did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But then in 3.19, this is the judgment. And what you get is a summary statement of the people who love the darkness and people who love the light. So Jesus did not come in the first time to condemn everyone. He came to save. There's a secondary implication that as light comes into the world, there is a revealing of, hey, a bunch of you people are scurrying for the corners like roaches. That's revealed by the very nature of light coming. And that absolutely is intentional. These people aren't getting judged and condemned now, but they're getting revealed the state of their hearts. So I think the problem is that the English judge has a narrower view than the Greek krinomai, the krima word family, does, which can mean to to reveal, to um, define, to uh, to make clear. I mean, that's the sense of judgment. In the same way that, like, after Ameri- after you know the Olympics, we have the people get the first, second, third place. That's judgment as well. So Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat. Um, I, I think is your question going further than that, or does that answer your question? Okay, yeah. So Jesus absolutely came to make things clear and to reveal some things and to uh, judge in that sense. He's not judging as in like final day of judgment in his first coming, no. So, yeah. Okay. Oh, Chris in the front and then Renee. So when you were talking about the... um idolaters being conformed to their idols uh, that what you worship you will eventually resemble as it shows your value system essentially Um, would you say that that's also we could say that that's a theme as Jesus warns people who claim to be following him and as the apostles reveal to people that are claiming to follow Jesus the urgency if their works do not match that Whatever you say with your mouth, you're following. If you're being conformed to a different image, 
you need to be aware of what that might mean. Uh, yes. It's, it's most clear in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in, in Matthew 6 or Luke 7 and 8. The tree is known by its fruit. That's the same logic. You're, you're going to bear the fruit of what you are. And there's that warning in Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're not going to perfectly image what we worship, but we will more perfectly do so over time. We should. There, it should be standing back. There should be a trajectory and a movement of something you're looking more and more like, like with a camera lens coming into focus. And so you may not fully come into focus to look like Jesus. You won't in this life, but you should come more into focus and it should be clear. You're coming into focus and not coming into fuzziness. You know, you, you should be, Oh, I see more Jesus in you. You know, it should be the idea, not, um, you know, I, whatever else you might see instead, whatever, gods of the people are being worshipped but yeah absolutely that and that's the same the same logic is getting away from this notion that faith saving faith is just some intellectual truth knowledge it it, it involves the volition the affections the desires you're going to start imitating you're going to be like what you value i mean it just makes sense what what excites you what you're passionate about what you think has the most most worth will organize your living and your thinking without without fail if it doesn't it's something else you think has more worth will be the thing that does i mean and that's ultimately where, where it gets to is you can't help but reveal what you think is valuable you can't help but worship worship just means worthship. you can't help acting like something has value you will the question is what um yeah renee Thank you. That's a wonderful segue to a thought that I had because of something you said, that this young man never had fellowship with the temple, the church. And so for him, he had uh, that community deprivation. Mm. And um, for us, we have so much comfort in this life. And to leave behind the comforts we have known and pursue Christ, I, I fear for myself and probably all of us, that could be an idol for us comfort and I, I think it might <laughs> yeah and I think of yeah. these people you know I maybe they went to the other side of the road like we talk about that used yeah. to hit themselves or you know be out in the I don't know in the middle of the country without fellowship but um how sensory deprivation fellowship deprivation all these uh comforts we have to you know it's quite a balancing act isn't it to stay so stayed upon God. And yes, we're grateful for the comforts, but what if we were to do without them? Yeah, go, go to Hebrews 12. It's not, it's not as simple as, is this sinful or not sinful? Paul says not all things are helpful. And the author of Hebrews has another way of putting it. Um, get there Hebrews 12 there it is okay therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us there's two things we're to set aside sin is clearly one of them weights are the other and I remember I think Abner Chow might have been the guy who said this but he's like there's nothing in the rules that say you can't run a marathon wearing snowshoes, but they're going to slow you down. 
it's not against the rules to to wear a diving suit and mask and scuba gear. You're not going to run very fast. And if we're just looking at what's wrong with it, um, we're, we're only paying attention to half the verse. Um, so, yeah, things can be things can be distractions and idols, and so really. It, it can be challenging in a land of plenty and wealth and prosperity. No, and it's tough because the, Christianity is not a stoic religion. It's, it's not um, always be cold and uncomfortable. There's a place for rest. There's a place for leisure. The, the wisdom is knowing how much of a place. That's the, da- the, the, the danger is getting things out of proportion and getting things out of balance. Um, Yes, you too. But how for him... False prophecy. (laughs) Um, How for that young man, it was actually a benefit that he never knew that community. He could pursue Christ without that weight. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, like I said, when we're thinking through the arc of this guy's suffering, you know, like this guy's born blind because he is going to glorify God later in his life. And then he gets healed... And then he goes through the ringer with the Pharisees. Jesus lets him go through the ringer. Jesus backs up. And we see the wisdom in why. This is going to set everything else up. But again, for this guy, things are better. No, things are bad again. I'm getting, and he gets thrown out of the synagogue. Now, if we just stopped there, he'd be like, man, that's the terrible, tragic story of the man born blind. But it isn't the tragic story of the man born blind because this is the man Jesus found and brought to faith. I I just think it's cool. Presumably the first time he sees Jesus, he sees him and comes to faith in him. Um, it's not like I said. It's not even clear if he knows Jesus is talking to him at first. Because I mean, I I'm guessing he probably does because he probably recognizes the voice. Would be my guess. Uh, and Jesus is notorious enough in Jerusalem that I mean, he found out the guy who put mud in his eyes was Jesus, presumably because people told him. So it's I might be overly dramatic for him not to know, but he knows when he says you've seen him. Then he knows for sure. Um, but it's just cool that. The first time he lays eyes on Jesus is when he gets brought to faith. And, and Jesus rebuked to the people around him, you keep seeing me, you keep seeing me, and yet you don't believe. So yeah, it, his blindness and his cure to blindness is part of what helped him come to faith. I mean, that's, that's, as he's thinking through all that, that's how he comes to faith, is processing, what does that mean of the guy who healed me? What does that mean about God hearing the man who healed me? What is that? You know, in the counter movement to the Pharisees who are solidifying their unbelief. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which is to say, you'd far rather be the man born blind, I think, um, in, in the big scheme of things, than being one of the Pharisees. But in the moment, one's going to look like they've got a cushy, easy time of it, and one's going to be an object of pity, and yet this guy is in the right spot. Yeah. Okay. Other... Thoughts, questions, complaints. Um, nothing. I'll, I'll go with one further that I wanted to develop further as well. Um, I just really think it's neat how the Pharisees' big threat, and it was a big threat, we're to understand this. John tells us why do his parents throw him under the bus? Verse 22, John 9, 22. We're told why. Um, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed 
that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So understand, even if we have a hard time, why would that be such a big threat? It's a big enough threat that parents would leave their son to the wolves rather than face it. The parents are like, you can talk to him. He's old enough to speak for himself because this threat had some weight to it. And, and again, in modern day of maybe Islam, you might have a, a comparison of how tied into community life the, their mosque system is co- comparable to how central the synagogue and the temple system is to the Jewish life. You, there really is no clear dividing line between your family, your community, the religion. It, it's all mixed together. So this is a big enough threat that the parents distance themselves from their son. And then they carry it out. They do exactly what they said they would do. They de-synagogue him. They, they cast him out of the synagogue. So the, the, the irony being, they think they're removing him from the religious worship. And yet the text ends with him being the one true worshiper in the middle, presumably, of a street. We don't know it's the street, but it's public. It's, it's not indoors. Because the Pharisees are nearby, and they hear it, and they say, are we blind to, right? So they exclude this guy from worship, and this guy ends worshiping, and that links back to Jesus saying, it's not about a place. If the hour is coming, and it's now here, when it's not going to be about a place. And here's proof positive that's absolutely right. Um, I, I, that's, that, to me, is a particularly beautiful reality. Meaning cast him out, they cast him in. <laughs> they mean to cast him out, they cast him in. I will leave you in. Um, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's amazing. Deb. Interesting that you should bring up that as your, (laughs) um, you know, when we all quit asking questions, you brought that up because that's what my question centers around, but I don't exactly know how to phrase it. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking as, as you spoke that in the sermon, Oh, gee, I've heard my brothers say exactly that. Hypocrites in the church, I want no part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, 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 no. And I appreciated your, if you could speak more to the whole thing of how to answer that kind of a accusation about Christians in church. Mm-hmm. Um, because I liked the analogy that you gave about, hey, when people see a good game, my husband is going to tell you all about Iowa State's good right. plays and Brock Purdy's and all that other stuff. Right. They get together with people like-minded yeah. that they can commune with. No, no. no C.S. Lewis was incredibly helpful on this point. He, he uh, is talking about how, I forget where, one of his essays, he used to view God like an insecure, vain girl who wanted to constantly be told she was pretty. Um, and he struggled with why does God want worship so much, right? Until he realized what he, what worship, what God wants in worship is he wants us to be pleased by him. He wants us to so th- be thrilled by him. And then he, he says he observed that the natural completion of any pleasure is to tell someone about it, whatever it is. You go to an amazing restaurant, what do you want to do? You want to tell people, oh, I had the best, you know, lamb vindaloo last night, um, or you, you go see a great movie. I mean, I, I know my kids, man, they, they see a show them one of the Marvel movies or something. They're talking with all their friends about it. 
And they're excited that the completion of the pleasure, the completion of the joy is in talking about it. Same thing, you know, a band you like drops a new song, whatever it is, a book you read, whatever thing it is that's been pleasing you, we're naturally evangelists about the things we're passionate about. We're, we naturally are. Oh, or good grief, you meet a guy or a girl who's, who's in love. They'll tell you about the, the object of their affection nonstop, right? Same thing. Because in every case, the completion, the fulfillment, the fruition of the pleasure and the joy is in talking about it and in sharing that pleasure with someone else. Um, I, I'll talk to Chris frequently. We'll watch the same movie or something. We'll talk. And as much as I liked the movie, I'm looking forward to talking about it. And what did you think? And what did you think of this? And I got this idea. You know, and that's the pleasure in it. Um, and so people who love the living God, one of the things we want to do is talk about it with each other. That's one of the reasons we come together. There are others, but that's just one of them. So the person who says they worship God and just wants to be left alone, nope. <laughs> nope. Um, no, Jesus said, you'll, you'll, by this, you'll know me that you love the brethren. So the, the, other piece, the, other, the other piece being, and this is 1 John 4.20, right? If anyone says, I love God, but doesn't love his brother who he has seen. He's a liar for how can you love God who you've not seen if you don't love your brother who you have seen? And the other point is, look, if you say you love God, the closest thing you're going to see to God is your neighbor who bears his image next to you. So um, I love God, but I despise his people. Now there is, there can, I mean, it's all the baggage. Most of the time people say that it's a, it's a cop out. If someone has been in the church, has been mistreated, has, has been exposed to some really rank hypocrisy, I, I'd be more patient with them. But still, ultimately, like, your hope's not in the church. Your hope is in the God the church is worshiping. I mean, by admission, we're here because we need... Everyone, every one of us who's a Christian here is fundamentally saying, I am so terribly awful that I needed the Son of God to die for me. That, that's what it means to walk in this door. So this isn't the club of the good people. This is, right? No, I mean, no, right? Um, so that's, now, you know, and if we're giving off the wrong implication, like shame on us, fine. But yeah, most of the time I think people say that it's, it's third degree removed and it's just a, it's just a smoke screen. Um, although there are some people who've had some really bad experience in churches and I would take a different tact of talking with them. But yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, ten minutes to go. Any other? Oh, Linda. Okay, I'm just curious. Wouldn't there have been a witness to what happened to him? Because someone had to take him to the pool. He couldn't see yet to get there on his own. What, what's your question? What do you mean? Everyone's confusion? Well, I mean, the Pharisees were trying to figure out, you know, asking him, who did this for you? I mean, no, there would have the been... the how. The, the word that keeps getting repeated is how. I think six times in the passage. How? 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 They do ask the who, but really it's the how. Um, and, yeah, there were, there were absolutely were witnesses, but there's some debate over, is this the man? No, it's not the man. Because John 11, the, heal, the raising of Lazarus, eclipses this in, in, in its, its uh, unprecedentedness, in its, in its glory, we, we miss clearly, if there's anything indicated in chapter 9, this is an unprecedented, absolutely confounding miracle of the Pharisees. This is no small thing. There is no 
man born blind in the Old Testament who's healed, out of the ministry of Moses, out of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, nothing. Right. This this is this is for people who've made up their mind that Jesus is a demon possessed Samaritan, this this is troubling. And they really don't want it to be true. No, no, it's, they, they wouldn't even believe it's the guy because they talked to his parents. Um, so, yes, no, there are, there are witnesses, but there's still confusion. Even, even back in uh, verse, hold on, back in verse um, 8, right? The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he, others said no, but he is like him. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is when he's going to the pool, no one knows a miracle is happening. Right, that's what I'm saying. These guys got mud in his eyes. So, so people aren't paying attention until after he's washed and he's seeing. Now all of a sudden. So, I mean, would there have been witnesses? Sure, but it wasn't like, like when we see like in a cartoon or something, there's like light shining is to let you know something powerful is happening. A, a blind man goes to a pool with junk in his eyes and washes isn't going to grab a ton of attention. It's what happens after that that's going to leave people gobsmacked. Right, and that's what... I guess maybe I didn't word it right, but okay. so the whoever took him there yeah. would have known, okay, he was blind when I took him there. He washed his face, and now he's not blind anymore. Yeah. So that person would have also been able to testify to the Pharisees that they saw him go from blindness to sight. The Pharisees have made it very clear what type of answers they're looking for. So if the parents kick the can and say, we're staying out of it, I think it's reasonable to think people who are less vested in this man could also do the same thing. So it's not as though, we're not really having as a, really, we're, this is amazing, what happened? Is not what's going on. They've already decided. We'll tell you what didn't happen. Jesus didn't prove he's the Messiah, because if you say that, we're kicking you out of the synagogue. That didn't happen. Jesus is a sinner. We, we've We've come to conclusion on that. So that didn't, and they've, they've narrowed down what they're looking for. In fact, when they come back to him the second time and they say, give glory to God, that's quoting Joshua to Achan. There's an implication. Tell us the honest truth. Stop pretending. Stop covering for Jesus. What really happened? Because when, when Joshua, when Achan gets singled out, remember, he, mm-hmm. uh, he steals the gold cloak. Give glory to God, my son, and tell me what you know, you've done. So when they say, give glory to God, we know this man's a sinner. Toe the line. Stay with us. Whatever happens, this is remarkable, but he's a sinner, and he won't do that. So there's such a pressure on it. You're, you're yes, un, undoubtedly people saw part of or all of the, they put mud on his eyes. But that still doesn't explain how you went from blind to seeing. How did the mud cure your blindness? The, the, real, the real question is, no, it, it, it's not a good medicinal treatment, right? right? What matters is who did it and what power and authority he has. So even though there are witnesses to, yeah, yeah, sure enough, he put mud in his eyes, spat in the ground, made mud. That doesn't tell you how he was healed any more than he washed in the pool of Siloam tells you how he was healed. He was healed because Jesus is the son of God with power. Jesus is the son of man to whom is given power and a kingdom and authority. That's why he was healed. So, yes, people saw the mud part, but that gets repeated even by him two or three or four times. That, that's not being challenged. It's not as though someone's saying, no, he didn't spit mud on the ground. How did mud, mm-hmm. spit mud, heal you? That, that's the question. 
um, and and the parents don't want to go near it, which would suggest to me why someone even around there might keep their mouth shut and not say much. Don, you look like you want to jump in. Don's like, okay. Uh, I have a had a friend that uh, had a, a mom who was blind, and I, oh, I knew she was blind. Uh, it's hard for me to believe it because she could get along mm. so well. So I don't know that there would necessarily have to be someone else that would take him at And he was in his own neighborhood. He was in his own uh, milieu. And so, you know, he could probably get along, knew how to get to the pool anyway. But, well, and yeah. it's possible he got up and grabbed someone who didn't see what was going on. It's not certain the person he asked, if he did ask someone to take him, it's not certain the person he asked to take him saw. What Jesus does is not initially grab a big of attention. I mean, all that happens... Jesus is walking by his disciples. They stop and have a conversation. Jesus spits on the ground, makes them put it in the guy, says, hey, go to the pool. Nothing about that would grab a ton of attention. So even if this guy gets up like, hey, can someone take me to the pool of Salome? I wouldn't assume you've got someone who's paying stark attention. This is a busy time in Jerusalem. We know Jesus, if, if I'm right that this is happening, coming out of the Feast of Booze, Jerusalem is overflowing with people. I, I wouldn't assume this was a big noteword of the event to people until the blind man came back seeing. So, yeah. Okay, two minutes. In the back, Marion. I think it was in one of your previous messages you talked a little bit, like kind of a reference back to creation with it mm. as far as like with the mud, how we were yeah. created, and that one of the possibilities is also that he didn't have eyes and Jesus yeah. could have created eyes to which then I get a little bigger reaction. Like how? Well, no, that's, that's, that's likely if someone's born blind, it's usually because their eyes are malformed. They don't have eyes. It's, it's possible that you're born with function with eyes that look like they function, but the potential that this man has empty sockets or they're closed over the fact that there's all sorts of malformities that could be the cause for from birth blindness. I mean, the, the, from the day he was born, they knew he was blind. This is something I was talking to Daniel about when I said maybe they found out in the coming weeks. Like, no, he says blind from birth. So most strictly speaking, blind from birth, which suggests you can look at the baby and see there's a problem with the eyes. So if you move in that direction, the healings, the remarkability of the healing makes even more sense. If here's a guy who didn't have eyes, and now he does, and the use of the clay linking with the creation of man from the dust of the ground um, seems the most likely explanation for the significance of that. So yes, we, we can't be certain, but I think it's entirely likely that something that remarkable happened. John highlights the absolute stunned, unexplainable, this is remarkable. And Jesus has done some crazy things in John's gospel that didn't get that type of reaction. So the feeding of the 5,000, we're not told people repeatedly, no, he didn't, no, he didn't, no way. We're told that here multiple times. So John is clearly highlighting for us the, the uh, wonder and the confusion and the, the Pharisees' sense of trying to deny this, which is going to get to John 11 where they're going to say, look, we can't deny this. We've got to kill him. He's doing notable miracles. Um, we, they wanted this credit. He's a demon-possessed Samaritan. Well, the demon-possessed Samaritan just raised a man from the dead. So... You know, like that's going to be a problem for your demon possessed Samaritan campaign. Uh, and that's starting here. Yeah. 
Okay, we are at time, ladies and gentlemen. I'll stick around for a few more minutes if you want to chat. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.